November 1982. Again? And that must mean this is the Player Missile Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. As mentioned in the last episode, I'm trying something new here with uh, splitting the magazines into multiple episodes. So this episode is going to have, let's see if I can get them all. We got Byte, Computers and Video Games, Computer Gaming World, Micro, Softline, and Softside. Next episode will be the 5200 stuff with uh, the kind of overview of the 5200 hardware and how it differs from the 8-bit hardware, and then a review of Kix, the 8-bit version, and the 5200 version that was ported to the 8-bit. The episode after that, we'll do December 82, where we split the magazine coverage again. And we have a special fun thing for the next magazine episode, uh, page 6, which is the first Atari-specific magazine out of the UK that we're going to cover here. That's two episodes down the road, so for now, let's get started here with the Byte magazine. This is the November 1982 issue, volume 7, number 11, 2 bucks 95 in the US, 3 bucks 50 in Canada, 1 pound 85 in the UK. It is 610 pages, and it weighs as much as a phone book. I'm using my paper copy here. I dug it out of storage because the Internet Archive was like was 500, 600 megabytes or something, and I didn't feel like taxing the Internet Archive's bandwidth for something that I wasn't going to look at very much. It is probably a good 20 millimeters thick. It feels like it's bigger than the phone book of some of the um, cities that I've lived in. On the cover, unfortunately, it's not a Robert Tinney piece of artwork here. It's a, it's a photo. It shows a motherboard. It says, Build the Circuit Seller MPX-16 Computer System. And it's a motherboard. There's no dimensions, really, but it has some slots on it exposed here. So it, it's like five slots. It looks It's a fairly big motherboard, I'm guessing. And it's just crammed with chips. It's like chips everywhere. And you've got eight-pin dips, 16, 30-pin dips. Got some dip switches. Got some edge connectors. A whole bunch of stuff. And the bottom right corner has this text that says graphics. That's it. The table of contents shows some interesting stuff, including an Atari article, Computer Animation with Color Registers by David Fox and Mitchell Waite. And Byte includes little blurbs about their articles. It says the color registers on the Atari 400 and 800 give programmers amazing animation capabilities, even in basic. That's the only specific Atari thing. There's a few other interesting articles that we might look at. One is an article about how the graphics were generated for the movie Tron. There's another one, A Short History of the Keyboard. There's a graphics primer. There's an interactive 3D graphics for the Apple II, which yeah, I might take a look at just because it says it's understanding the theory, so maybe it's not super Apple II specific. And there's an interview with Chuck Peddle, who we know is one of the designers of the 6502, but this article says it's uh, regarding the Victor 9000 computer. It mentions the Byte game contest again. There's two games here that said took third and fourth place, so we'll see if those are Atari. It doesn't say so in the table of contents here, but we'll take a quick look. And that's all I see in the table of contents, so we'll start going. The first article we come to is Tronic Imagery. This is by Peter Sorensen, and apparently it was excerpted from a larger work, it says, in the Cinefix magazine. And it must have filled up that entire magazine because it's excerpted here over 25 pages. And, you know, of course, being Byte, there's a bunch of ads, you know, mingled in there, but still, it's quite dense. It's a good 10 pages, probably, of, of text and photos. It's a super detailed article, as you can imagine by the length of it. I said there were a total of about 15 minutes of digital imagery needed for the film. And this is the pure digital stuff. They're not talking about the compositing stuff that um, was done by sort of traditional hand cell animation. So this is just the digital image part. Two CGI companies were used, Magi and Triple I. And it said they both were working for almost a whole year. Apparently those are the main two companies. Two other companies did some small work, it says. One was Robert Abel and Associates, it said produced the opening title sequence, and Digital Effects Incorporated did Bit, the character that sort of alternates between that um, octahedron and then the what it calls a spiky sphere. 
It talks about the possibility of the film being done using digital printing. That would have made a number of things easier, but they said it just it wasn't feasible in terms of cost. And so they had to do the traditional like print to film as the final step. You know, full digital editing wasn't, didn't, wouldn't become common until much later. The article says that Magi did the work on the first half of the film and I did the second half because it said there was a very stylistic change. So I guess it says that everything from the solar sailor and after was done by this I company. They go into a little bit of the differences, actually go into quite a lot of detail about the differences between the two companies. I'm only going to cover a little bit here because a lot of this article is kind of beyond the scope of my podcast, but it's, it's very interesting. And if you're interested in film at all, I th- you should probably read the whole article. But Magi system was sort of a, a solid geometry approach where you add and subtract uh, geometric primitives, whereas Triple uh, I was more polygon based. There's a lot of technical information they talk about. I guess this is Magi talking about their process, saying they would generate frames in uh, on a thousand line terminal. I said it would take them an hour to generate 84 frames and at 24 frames a second, that's about three and a half seconds of video. That was kind of the chunk size they'd operate on. And when they delivered their finished product, they'd render it on film and it was said to be the equivalent of 1800 lines if it were on 35 millimeter film. And again, the article is kind of out of the scope of of the podcast here. It's very detailed and long. So if this kind of stuff interests you, I definitely recommend reading the whole article. Next, we come to the Computer Animations with Color Registers article by David Fox and Mitchell Waite. And it says, this article is an excerpt from a new book entitled Computer Animation Primer by David Fox and Mitchell Waite. And I don't have a huge collection of books or anything, but it happens to be one of the books that I do have. And so if you have that book, it seems like this article is a lightly edited version of Chapter 6, the Color Register Animation Chapter. The article doesn't include all the examples. In fact, it only includes one of the large examples that's in the book, but it does include include most of the tables and several of the smaller examples. So animating by color registers, of course, means changing the color register values so that it makes stuff appear to move. You're not actually changing the data on the screen at all. You're just changing the color registers. And so a lot of this, you know, the technique required is careful choice of what to make assigned to each color register. The first significant example is in Graphics 7 using, you know, its four-color mode, three colors in the background, to draw sort of a Star Wars Death Star-style trench. And the way the trench works is they use only two colors, but there's three sets of sort of U-shaped figures on the screen, you know, starting from uh, the vanishing point in the center of the screen, widening out to the edges of the screen. So by cycling two colors through the three registers, it can sort of more obviously see which direction you're going. You know, if it was just two colors through two registers, you'd just be alternating one, and then you could only see flickering. There could have been, like, three colors through three registers where it sort of, you know, has a wave coming towards you. In the example, you use the paddle controller to to change the speed, you know, the delay loop at which the effect happens. The big example is using Graphics 10, which is the GTIA mode that allows the eight independent foreground colors and one background color. The example is the same in both the book and the article. It's a waterfall scene. It includes the Atari Basic source to generate the scene, and it mentions the sort of deficiencies of the Atari built-in fill routine and shows an example of how to work around it. In the book, there's a better example and a better description. In the magazine, it just sort of mentions that this is a kind of rectangular-based fill. It fills starting from the left and stops when it hits a non-background pixel on the right-hand side. In the book, it goes into more detail about how to use this. Like, you set the right-hand side boundary in some non-background color, do a plot or draw to to a particular point on the left-hand side boundary, do a position to the bottom left side, and then call the XIO, uh, XIO18 command to do the fill itself. The color value for the fill has to be poked into a memory location before the XIO command is called. It notes that Microsoft Basic on the Atari has a better fill command, and then there are other fill commands. I remember seeing one in analog, and so we'll look at that when we come to it. 
But at any rate, this basic program sets up this, this nice picture in Graphics 10 with a procedure to draw a bunch of trees on the screen, and there's even little shadows for the trees, and this stream running through the, sort of the center, and a waterfall on the right-hand side, and it looks like it's cycling through four colors of blue to make the water effect, like move to the left on the screen, then down the waterfall, and the left on the, the stream through the main part of the graphic. So pretty detailed 13-page article, 13 pages of actual text over 20 pages of byte. It's 32 pages in the book, although it's not a super fair comparison because it's not a direct size to the number of you know words on a page and whatever, but there's definitely stuff that was left out of the magazine article that was included in the book. Just prior to this article in the magazine, there's this like 24-page special advertising section. So the page numbers are listed like 192-21. So they're uncounted in the actual table of contents pages, but it's uh, it's from the country of Taiwan. It says uh, Computers in Taiwan, ROC, Republic of China. It's all like kind of touting what the companies in Taiwan are capable of doing, the American companies that they're currently having business partnerships with, how the government is investing in all sorts of stuff to make the computer industry in Taiwan a focus of their economy. Next, we come to the interview with Chuck Peddle, and unfortunately for us, it only mentions the 6502 in passing in the introduction to the um, interview with him. And it's really just an article about the Victor 9000 and its design. It's a very technical article about it, so if you're interested in that machine, I would check it out. I'm not, so I won't. Next, we come to one of the Byte Game Contest winners, this third-place game called Jet Set by Eugene Szymanski of Princeton, New Jersey. And unfortunately, it's for the TRS-80 Model 2. After that is the third-place game. Oh, wait, I think I said the yeah, Jet Set was fourth place. This is third place. This is the game of Rat and Dragon. And unfortunately, again, this is for the Apple II. So we will skip it. Next, we come to a short two-page article, A Short History of the Keyboard by Phil Lemons, the West Coast editor. He begins talking about how the keys are not really standardized on any on the keyboards except for the letter keys themselves, you know, the QWERTY top row and all the rest of the alphabet. But he says that wasn't even always a standard. He said back in the late 1880s, 1890s, when typewriters were starting out, each typewriter company had their own layout. Talking about the Crandall, which top row was Z-P-R-C-H-M-I, the American, which top row was C-J-P-F-U-B-L, the Hall layout, K-B-F-G-N-I-A, the Columbia layout, ZKPWMCR, and the Morris layout, XVGWSLZ. Additionally, he said some layouts had TH and E right next to each other because, you know, the is one of the more common words type. He said there was a world typewriter company that had A and D together for and. The Edison Mimeograph typewriter said group not only A and D, T-H-E, but also O and F and I-N and G were all next to each other. He said there were some interesting mutant keyboards, the one called the Calligraph, so it had a circular keyboard, no shift keys, all the small letters grouped in the center and the, surrounded by the capital letters. It says, with no apparent correspondence between the arrangements of the two sets of letters. There's one called the Imperial Model B that had three semicircular rows of ten keys each, arranged in an arc, he said. So there was something called the Saturn keyboard that had one straight, very long row of keys. Another one, he said, made some sort of sense, called the Hartford keyboard. It had six straight rows of keys, no shift key, and a separate key for each small and capital letter, with identical rows of keys for both cases. To the author's credit, he mentions a clearly superior keyboard, the Dvorak keyboard, since that's the one I use. And if I have not evangelized enough about this keyboard, the left hand is all the vowels, and the right hand are the five most common consonants, all in the home row. He knows the Dvorak keyboard is not the only so-called reform keyboard, as he says, but it just occurs too late that everybody's kind of standardized on QWERTY and nothing's really likely to change. 
If I had to choose the keyboard now, I might actually choose the Colmac keyboard, which leaves the bottom row on the left hand mostly the same. So all the like shortcuts, you know, control Z, X, C, V, stuff like that are in the same place for cut and paste that we commonly use now with computers. But it messes up most of the rest of the things. And it seems like there's some heat map sort of typing examples that's, that it reduces finger movement even beyond what the Dvorak does. But I've been using Dvorak for like 30 years, and so I don't know that I want to change to yet another keyboard layout. Because I can actually go back, given a few days, I can go back to a QWERTY keyboard, you know, and type at a reasonable rate. And as I've mentioned before, Dvorak is a very effective keyboard locker because people won't want to use your machine when they don't get what they're expecting when they type their keys. The article continues with a little information on the num- numeric keypad and how, you know, the order can be 0 at the bottom and then 1, 2, 3 above that, or it can work like a phone, which is 0 at the bottom, but then the next row is 7, 8, 9, then 4, 5, 6, and 1, 2, 3 on the top. Anyway, I'm using a little article. I enjoyed its praise of the Dora keyboard, of course. The graphics primer article turns out to be not what I was expecting. It's an article by Greg Williams, the senior editor, and this is talking about both input and output, how you generate graphics and how you display graphics. Talks about raster scan versus vector monitors. It also includes printers and plotters as output devices. Then for input devices, it includes joysticks, paddles, tablets, and digitizers, even mentioning the 3D digitizers. Finally, it mentions mice and trackballs and says that they can be available for anywhere in the range of three to five hundred dollars. There's no mention of optical mice. The first optical mouse I remember is the Sun mouse, but it had that little glass, or I don't know, it wasn't glass, it was like a mirror pad or something, and it needed that to operate, where you know, now the little optical mice, I guess, take little little pictures and sort of compute the delta based on the, the change in the picture. The article on Interactive 3D Graphics for the Apple II by Andrew Pickholz of Fairfax, Virginia, is a very long, detailed article. The first half is all the theory, and the second half is Apple Basic and then Apple Pascal uh, example programs for rendering you know, objects on a 2D screen. So the first part of the article goes in the theory, talks about perspective, and then the differences between orthographic, oblique, and isometric representations before diving into all the math that needs to happen for a perspective transformation. It includes the vector math and all the matrices needed to transform your 3D model into a 2D image on a projection plane. But yeah, the code is all for apples, although, of course, the theory is applicable to everything. And that's about it for Byte. On the back cover is an ad for the Radio Shack color computer with Isaac Asimov and his sideburns as the spokespeople. Next up is the computer and video games. This is November 1982 issue, 75p on the cover price, 116 pages in the issue. On the cover, it has a picture of a copper arresting a crook from a very low vantage point, like from the street level, you're looking up, and you see this helicopter way above them shining a light down. The copper's saying, you're nicked, my son. And next to it is the Croydon Blag. I had to look up Blag. I guess Blag is like a crime in uh, UK slang or parlance. In the upper right corner, there's a little holly leaf. It says Santa's computer choice. In the lower left corner, there's something. There's like a little sunburst thing. It says Pi Mania. It says the 6,000-pound computer quest. And then finally text, it says game programs for the ZX81, Spectrum, Vic, Atari, and many more inside. As a little commentary here, computer and video games is becoming my least favorite magazine. From a 1982 perspective, I can see sort of these, you know, small basic programs when you didn't have access to a lot of commercial stuff. Or you're learning basic and you want to try to see how some you know, game logic is put together using basic. But the idea that they're, the games are so small and they're spread about among so many disparate systems. That like here, I think there's just this one article for the Atari and that's it in terms of listings. So I think I'm really going to start speeding through computers and video games unless I see, you know, I'll call out the Atari stuff, but I'm not going to mention a whole lot more unless I see something like super interesting. I know my buddy Neil has a couple more games in this, so I'll be on the lookout for those. But I'm unlikely to do a page-by-page summary of this magazine much longer.
In the games news section, they have one game of, uh, it's sort of like a new product section. They have one game mentioned, they call it Moonbase 10. It's actually Moonbase IO, which I talked about several episodes ago. It's the one that has sort of a background track on cassette where it, it has speech. And then it's like that you're this little scrolling, you're on the scrolling background and you shoot various things. But I didn't find it super interesting or compelling, but it sure has gotten a lot of notice in the new product section of various magazines. They do have a little section of, of about the VCS, talk about Star Raiders being available, and then a company called Apollo being the fourth independent company selling games in the UK for the VCS. I wonder if we can guess the other ones. We've got Activision and Magic, Apollo's third, what would be the fourth? Hmm. Yeah, if you can guess the fourth, let me know. They have an arcade section where they have tips about some games. One of them is Robotron, and it is more tips than strategy. It has stuff like stay out of the way of the hulks, blast the spheroids and enforcers, and finish off the grunts, and scoop up any humanoid clones before the hulks kill them, which is, you know, kind of what you'd assume anyway, as after playing the game for a while. There's some more legitimate tips, like it says spheroids often start in corners and are vulnerable to the player who has mastered diagonal fire. It does have more specific tips for level 5, the brainwave. It says eliminate the single spheroid, and then blast the brains quickly. One thing I may try is it says it's possible to blast your way out of very tight corners by using the old asteroids technique of moving and firing towards the enemy. So, I don't know, I'll have to give that a shot. But really, these tips sort of remind me of uh, Red Sox pitcher Bill Lee in describing the 1975 World Series lineup against the Reds. He said the scouting report was like, well, pitch around Morgan, pitch around Bench, pitch around Perez, pitch around Griffey, and pretty soon you're down five runs with the bases loaded facing the pitcher. And that's what Robotron really feels like to me is just an impossible game. It's a real pleasure to watch somebody who's good at it. Just, you know, I get overwhelmed as somebody watching and they're actually, you know, going through and somehow weaving their way through all these hundreds of things moving around the screen at once. It is an amazingly frantic game. Anyway, we get into the listings now. Um, there is an ad for computer and video games t-shirts. And unfortunately, the reproduction is small enough and I can't zoom in. It's hard to say what it is. It says one's a computer and video games logo and the other two feature bugs. One, it says Snag Jr., and then the other is Screaming Foul Up. I don't know what those are. Have I missed those? Are those the, like, mascots of the magazine? But anyway, there's an order form, so you can get your computer and video games t-shirts. The cover article, The Croydon Blag, is a VIC-20 game. It runs in 3 to 5K. It's about 150 lines of basic. We get to the Atari game. It's called Uranium Core by Martin Steeby. It uh, requires 16K. It's a paddle game, but the way it's designed is it's one paddle controls the horizontal and one paddle controls the vertical, and apparently you've got to catch or run over objects. The backstory is some uranium mining thing where there's antimatter rods mixed in with uranium, and you've got to somehow get the uranium rods. It's about 40 lines of basic. Pi Mania, as referenced on the cover, is looks like perhaps the ZX Spectrum version of Sword Quest. A golden sundial was commissioned, apparently worth 6,000 pounds, and it's metaphorically buried in some time and space, if you can hear my air quotes. So you buy this 10-pound cassette, and it's a game on it. It says it's written in basic, and it says there, <laughs> there are no elaborate precautions to prevent people from listing it. But the author, Mel Croucher, apparently, is convinced that there'll be no shortcuts to the solution in doing this. If people want to work out the puzzle by wading through masses of code, they're welcome to try. So, <laughs> I bet people do. All right, it says the, so the company's managing director, this Automata software, the company's managing director is this Mel Croucher, and it's confident it will be several months before anybody cracks the program. The programmer is Christian Penfold. Apparently it's a, it's a maze game of some sort. The tips are is to use a pencil and paper to, to map the maze. It said dismiss nothing in the program, even the music should be noted, could be significant, and look for clues even in the instructions. So, I don't know, we will follow up on this. 
DeSantis Computer Choice is a listing of a bunch of different computers available in the UK. And there's about, there's two columns or so on each computer. The, you know, TI-994A, VIC-20, the Dragon 32, the BBC, ZX Spectrum, Jupiter Ace, Oric 1, the Binetone computer, Color Genie, Commodore 64, Acorn, Electron, and then, of course, the Atari 400 800. And the article, or this little thing, makes it seem like the 400 can't have a disk drive. And I suppose initially maybe it can't because there's not enough memory that it can't boot DOS, but it certainly can be expandable. And there's any number of advertisements in the magazine that shows the 400 is expandable to, to 48 or even 64K. And it also sort of alludes to the fact that the 400 can only be used with basic and assembly language. And it says the 800 is compatible with extended basic, pilot, and Pascal. And again, I suppose they're probably meaning that the memory is limited on the 400 initially. It concludes with the 400 being a good family computer with impressive games and educational packages, but that the 800 is probably overpriced. And that's about all we'll really cover in this magazine. The back cover is an ad for Imagic with a photograph of three of their boxes. Um, I always like the Imagic boxes, you know, they're silver and they have the sort of rainbow stripes on them. And the artwork is sort of like a, you know, photograph of some scene, not the game artwork, at least on the front. It shows Star Voyager, Demon Attack, and Trick Shot. The Star Voyager ad is that I've seen this one earlier in uh, computer and video games. It's kind of this, the half Millennium Falcon with one of the like front forked pokey things cut off and smashed onto another. So they had, they had included this exact, and maybe it was an article on Star Voyager. So this is months ago in the CVG. But I mentioned this. I remember seeing this photo and mentioning it and saying it was it was odd to use this Millennium Falcon model that has obviously been you know sliced in half and kind of altered. But I didn't realize that's where it came from at the time. So now I know. We will now head on to the computer gaming world. This is volume two, number six, November, December, 1982, $2.75 on the cover price. There are 50 pages in this issue. It's their normal logo computer gaming world with the floppy disk on the upper right-hand side of the, of the top of the magazine. The background is blue and you're looking at a 3D rendered Pac-Man maze where a Pac person is chomping a slice of cake with a single candle in it that is trailing a wisp of smoke above it. And in the perspective going away, you see a couple ghosts sort of lurking in the distance. The inside front cover says, 1985 was not a very good year. The Russians invaded Germany, stormed the Persian Gulf, attacked Norway, and overran the Baltic. Introducing our new series of war games when superpowers collide. That's an ad from Strategic Simulations saying that SSI has just turned the Cold War into a very hot one. So it says the first four releases are Germany 1985, RDF, Norway 1985, and Baltic 1985. And why didn't I read that earlier? It's only available for the Apple II. Dang it. The table of contents is called The Menu in this magazine. It says this issue marks one year the computer gaming world has been in, in existence. So clearly that's why the candle was on the cake. In the little from the editor section, it says the response of our readers and the industry in general are the power pills that have kept us going when the ghosts of problems have attacked us. Each issue has increased quality and added features. This issue is no exception. In addition to the new layout features, we've added another new column, Microcomputer Mathemagic by Dr. Michael Ecker. Look for a regular Atari 400-800 column beginning in our next issue. Yay. And look for the Star Maze contest in this issue. So we'll figure that out. Table of contents shows History of a War Game Design from Idea to Royalties by Gary Grigsby. A Japanese Strategy in Guadalcanal Campaign. Not sure we'll cover that. Four for the Atari, four games reviewed, which we will cover. Eastern Front Scenario Options. Then this Star Maze Review and Contest. A review of Legionnaire, which is Chris Crawford's new game. Cytron Masters for the Atari, which is the article by Danny Button, which we will definitely look at. Andromeda Conquest, don't know what that is. Two new scenarios for Torpedo Fire, whatever that is, and Beyond Sargon 2 scenarios for chess. There's an Inside the Industry column by Dana Lombardi. I don't know if this is their title or what, but it says Associate Publisher Game Merchandising. 
don't know what that means, but surveyed 105 game and educational software manufacturers in 1981 and the first half of 1982. It has this big list of all these manufacturers saying the number of games they released in 1981 and the number of new games released in the first six months of 1982. It's ordered a bit strangely. I thought it was ordered by the number of games in 1981, and it's mostly ordered that way, but Adventure International is first with 55, and second is APX with 36, but third is Instant Software with 50, and Dynacomp with 40. So according to this list, APX should be you know fourth if they were doing it purely by the, the ranking of 1981 games. And even if they're doing it aggregate with the first six months of 1982, Dynacomp has 80, which was listed as fourth, so they should be probably first. So yeah, it's kind of roughly in order of magnitude of number of releases. Some of the companies mentioned are Artwork Software, Creative Computing Software, with 17 and 16 respectively, then CR Online, formerly Online Systems, with 15, Commodore with 13, Serious software was only 10 last year in 81 and 7 in the first 6 months of 80. That seems low. I thought Sirius had more stuff than that. Broderbun only with 9 and 8. Datasoft with 0 in 81 and 6 in first half of 82. Kbyte with nothing in 81 and 4 in 82 or first half. So yeah, this is, I don't know how misleading this is. Maybe that everything really ramped up in the second half of 82. In some of the text it notes, there's no relationship between the number of games released and how a company's top game did. Said like some companies like Infocom and Budgeco only had a couple titles, but sold more than 25,000 copies each. Then it has an interesting table of market share, at least by the percentage of software released. So the categories are Apple, TRS-80, Atari, and others. For 1981, Apple had 28%, TRS-80 at 25, Atari at 21, and the others had 24. 1982, Apple is down to 26, TRS-80 is way down to 18, Atari is up to 24, but the others are up to 31. The others are including the VIC-20, the IBM PC, the TI-99-4A, the ZX-81, and then it includes stuff like the Xerox 820 and a few other machines. So an interesting little page for what it's worth. I'm not sure, since they gather this data themselves, you know, how accurate it is to the whole software industry, you know, writ large. But it's some sort of data point, I guess. There's an article, Taking a Peek, which is like little capsule previews, I guess, of games. And the nice thing is it seems like they there's about, oh shoot, 25 games or so that they sort of detail in little, like, one-paragraph blurbs. But they include a screenshot for each one of them. For the Atari, they show Alien Garden by Epix, which is an interesting looking game. It's like, I don't know, maybe a, possibly a game of life sort of game. It's like this crystal garden grow is growing and you touch things and it grows differently. So I tried it here just briefly and I can't figure out anything about what's going on. You have this little bug you're flying around and you touch things, these little crystal growths, and they change. The instruction manual says there's generations of things and they behave differently when you touch them with different parts of your little bug critter. So I don't know, I am having a hard time figuring it out. So as I turn the page and see more of these, they're mostly for the Apple II, but I see one that I didn't know started out as an Apple II game. It's called Monster Mash, although on the Atari it's called Monster Smash, which is one of my favorite little pick-up-and-play games on the Atari. I'm definitely going to look at that one when we get into 1983 games, because it wasn't released till 83 on the Atari, but apparently it was initially written on the Apple II. I found various references that say, said the programmer David Eisler did the Apple II version as well, so that is something I am not aware of. I wouldn't have thought that they could have done a, as good a version on the Apple II as the Atari version. Finally, on the last page, we get to more Atari stuff. There's Picnic Paranoia, Protector 2, Claim Jumper, Frogger, which are all sort of familiar games, and then one I haven't heard of, Valley of the Kings from Dynacomp, some sort of maze game it looks like. And then there's Battle for Normandy, an SSI game that's available for Atari as well as Apple and TRS-80. 
the article, The History of a War Game Design by Gary Grigsby, is talking about him being the author of Guadalcanal Campaign and how he sort of went through designing the game, you know, researching programming, but not much on the programming itself, but then sort of finding a publisher and then how it went, you know, exchanging contract negotiations, um, you know, exchanging letters, talking to the company, um, settling on the publisher, publisher being SSI, and then sort of the back and forth, how they improved the game. It's kind of a me version of Chris Crawford's article that we dissected in depth in, I think, the August 82 issue of Creative Computing. But this is sort of like a very high-level overview of the process. Next, we come to Real World Gaming by Danny Button. This is a continuation of the articles that she's written in the last several issues. She said, the main phases of game development in a game that simulates real-world field of interest are system definition, data collection, model development, programming, and playtesting. So system definition was covered last time. This article is about the data collection phase. And it said, depending on your outlook, data collection can be either the most boring or most interesting aspect of simulation game design. So it first starts with observation. And so generally, you're going to pick a subject to do that you're interested in, and that this observation must precede data collection. Kind of like you have to know what data you're going to collect before you actually collect it. Also, she's saying study the previous games of this sort of same genre so you can get an idea of what their successes and failures are. For example, if you were designing a war game, you'd look at other war games and their combat systems and what are the strengths and weaknesses and how closely you might imitate some of those systems that have already been sort of, you know, play tested. In other types of games, she said it's tempting to sort of group things into discrete outcomes. Like there's, you know, 40% chance of, of this, 25% chance of that, blah, 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 down to like small percentages of, of events. So, if, But if you only have like five events, that's obviously not typical of what can happen in, in real life. So as opposed to these discrete things, the real world is usually in a sort of a continuum. And, you know, board games are limited in discrete options, whereas computer games are much more able to deal with this, you know, broad spectrum of possible results. The computer having a random number generator means that you're not limited to a small set of things. You have this wide range of outcomes. She then talks about normal distributions and sort of probabilities and testing to see that the outcomes that you sort of anticipate fall into like ranges that would be sort of acceptable to the player. You know, that you don't get these these crazy wild game altering situations more common than should, you know, fit with the theme of the game. Finishing off, she talks about how the computer being, you know, not limited to discrete outcomes can have factors that affect the probabilities of things, like mentioning specifically a game that has hand-to-hand combat. If the player is more fatigued, then the chances of success are less. And that could be either a linear curve, you know, the more fatigue you get, you have a, you know, it's a ratio of how fatigued to your you know, failure percentage, or it could be like a power curve, where if you're twice as fatigued, you have four times the failure rate. The conclusion is you need to reduce your data gathering, your findings down into mathematical relationships. And then because the computer doesn't have to you know, fit into a board game where you have to roll dice, you have all these possibilities that you can have a much wider range of opportunities for your mathematical model. Next, we come to that Guadalcanal campaign, and that's for an Apple II, so we'll skip it. Then we have four for the Atari. These reviews are all by Alan Daum. Uh, there is Attack on EPCYG4, which is a two-player arcade game, it says, where two players act as a team, one is a pilot and the other is the gunner of a flying saucer trying to destroy the cities on an alien world. And I tried playing it as a single player. It's possible, but it's very difficult. I'll have to recruit one of my kids here to try it out one of these days. Here's the game's Hockey and Soccer from Gamma Software. And I think it's the same hockey we talked about. Maybe was it the last, the first half of 80, of November 82 here in the Creative Computing? 
And finally, the other review is of Seamus, which is clearly a fantastic game. He said the game's biggest flaw is there's no pause control and no place to rest. It says it can take him, it took him like a half hour to get through the hundred rooms. He said despite that, Seamus is easily the most addictive of the games reviewed here, ranking it among the best arcade games for the Atari, which is something I would agree with. Next is the article Eastern Front Scenario Options by Ian Chadwick, the same Ian Chadwick who wrote a whole bunch of stuff like mapping the Atari. Starts off saying, those of you fortunate enough to have an Atari have more than likely played Chris Crawford's deservedly famous war game, Eastern Front. If you are at all like myself or any of the many novices to the game I've spoken to, you've probably found it equally frustrating. It's a devil of a game to win, even at the best of times. Then he says he was provided a copy of the source code by Chris Crawford for a review in another magazine. And then so he used the, the code and some documentation that was provided by Chris Crawford. He set to work creating another scenario. And what this article is, is a listing of a bunch of cheat codes, essentially. So on the APX disk, he lists sectors and bytes to change to modify the all the parameters of the game. So like the strength of uh, enemy units the movement speed, how often troops are replaced. Uh, you can change the terrain, list tables and stuff to change there. Uh, defensive values, if the Finnish units can attack or not. So as like, yeah, a bunch of tables with hex values and sectors on which to change these. So if you're interested in, in Eastern Front and modifying the outcomes, this is a great little article. And it reminds me of a recent thread going around on Atari Age about some cheat codes for various games. So I'll include a link on that in the show notes. It's called Atari 8-Bit Game Patches, where it lists these cheats for a whole bunch of different games. It's not quite in as, as precise a location, you know, sector and byte number. Instead, it lists hex values to search for and what to replace them with. Continuing on in the magazine, we get to Microcomputer Mathemagic, which is Interesting Recreational Mathematics and Computer Applications. The author and his address are listed at the end, saying he's an assistant professor of mathematics at the Penn State Worthington Scranton campus in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So it's a couple little math challenges and some basic programs to like test your friends with. An example is the number 153. It says, take any whole number, which is a multiple of three, take the cube of each digit and add the cubes together, and then it'll produce a number. And then you repeat that process. Take the cube of each digit, add those all together, get another number, and it says eventually you'll end up at 153. And he explains this by saying that the number 153 is the only number that is equal to the sum of the cube of all of its digits. And so he does not provide a rigorous mathematical proof of this, but he says if you want to try it, take out the test for it being a multiple of three, and then run the program again, and you'll see it just continues forever. And then he invites correspondence for interesting mathematical problems, and I guess we'll see if this continues in future magazines. There's an article on that Star Maze contest. Turns out Star Maze is an Apple II game from Surtech, a high-res space adventure game. And the contest is to get a map of the 16th level of the maze in the game and then send it to Surtech. And the, the judging is that the map should be sufficiently detailed to be clear to the judges that it is the actual 16th level. So hurry, you got to get your entries postmarked before December 31st, 1982. There's a review of Legionnaire, the real-time war game, it says. It's a Atari with 16K. It's the Chris Crawford game by Avalon Hill. It says it's reminiscent of Eastern Front, and you can imagine it by thinking of the Eastern Front map with a train of contours instead of streams, hills, and swamps. This is a serious long review. It's like three and a half pages, where it's a war game in the style of Roman legions, where you command up to ten legions, and you're trying to eliminate all the barbarian units before they destroy Caesar's legion. Apparently it's controlled similarly to Eastern Front with joystick and entering moves. And he goes over a lot of strategies. And this is too in-depth for me. It's uh, it's very, very detailed. I'll include a link to the show notes of a gameplay video if you're interested in this kind of game. 
The next article is another by Danny Button. It's Cytron Masters for the Atari Conversion versus Upgrade. He said Cytron Masters is a half-breed game, either a strategy game with an action element or an action game with strategic elements. Originally written for the Apple II and entirely in machine language, said she had an Atari 800 collecting dust and decided to convert it. But because the Atari is a next-generation computer, as compared to the Apple II, her words, not mine, found that a lot of sophisticated stuff that took a lot of work on the Apple can be done with ease on the Atari. And provides an example of an explosion with a sound that's going on simultaneously, noting that you have to time your clicks of the speaker with your graphic draw routine, and noting that's really hard on the, to do on the Apple. Initially thinking that the, a straight port would be acceptable, taking it to Atari users, they said, oh, it's a great game, but where's the color? And, you know, what are those little noises? And why don't you, you have joystick control? So the result being that she said all of these sophisticated hardware features of the Atari are useful, saying stuff like using the sound processor with four voices to make truly impressive sound effects, using the display list and display list interrupts to change colors on the fly, character graphics for color texts and high-res graphics on one screen, using player missile graphics for additional colors and fast animation, and most usefully, the vertical blank interrupts to allow two programs to apparently run at once. All in all, the Atari is a fantastic game machine, does have its bad points, such as an overblown and a horribly slow operating system, a basic that's more like Apple Integer Basic than AppleSoft, and a disk drive that's reminiscent to Apple's cassette in speed and reliability. But for a game program in machine language that uses its own operating system, as Cytron does, you can't beat the Atari. The Atari version of Cytron Masters was definitely an upgrade rather than a conversion. Next, we come to a review of Andromeda Conquest, which is an Avalon Hill game available for many systems, including the Atari. It's a strategy game apparently written in BASIC, and I don't know, I'm not that interested enough in it to review it, so you can read the article if you are. There's an ad for Monster Mash. It says for the Apple II and Apple III in emulation mode, and I'm waiting for Monster Smash on the Atari to come out. It says you're using gravestones as little paddles to smash these monsters, which I didn't really realize. <laughs> Having a pirated version of the game, I never had the instructions. There's an article beyond Sargon 2, Scenarios for Chess by Roger J. Cooper, but I think Sargon 2 is only on the Apple II, so we'll skip that. There's some micro-reviews. There's one for the Atari Sea Fox, which appears to be a conversion of that arcade game of the similar name, where it is a ship on the surface dropping depth charges to destroy ships and submarines and stuff below you. Approaching the end of the magazine here, they have a whole page with um, suggestions for writing for Computer Game World. And so they have review articles, where they have micro-reviews, which are 300 to 600 words, and feature reviews of about 1,000 to 2,500 words. They're also looking for ideas for additions to their regular list of departments. So if you have a column idea, you are invited to submit that to CGW. Also, they would like designer notes if you're, any, if you're a game designer and you want to submit an article about your game. It says, all submissions to be typed and become the property of Golden Empire Publications, Inc. Rights revert to the author upon publication or rejection. And it says, specifically, our purchase covers first world rights, whatever that means at that time. It says, CGW pays $0.02 cents per word for most copy and $30 per page for most artwork. Finally, I have a little section here at the end of some rankings. It say, a breakdown of machines owned by the responders to this survey was uh, 53% Apple, 34% Atari, 7% TRS-80, 6% IBM PC. And then there's a list of games they offered, they ranked, or they offered a list of 22 games to be ranked, and 15 of them received enough responses to be listed. And so there's a chart here of a summary of a rank of 1, which is terrible, to 9, which is outstanding. And Guadalcanal campaign from SSI got first with a composite rating of 7.78, where it said 30% of the respondents had played it. 
Then it goes down, like Cytron Masters was fifth, 25% of the people had played it, with a composite rating of 6.75. They also have a ranking of their world top 10, they say. This is the top 10 games based on their composite rating. Wizardry is on top with an 8.25. Then Computer Baseball from SSI, a 7.80. Olympic Decathlon by Microsoft for a 7.79. Then Guadalcanal, we just saw with 7.78. Choplifter from Rotobrunnen by 7, with 7.71. And Southern Command by SSI, 7.71. Escape from Rungastan, Sirius Software, 7.69. Knight of Diamonds, Surtex, 6, 7.66. Galactic Gladiators, SSI, 7.57. And finally, Rendezvous from Edgeware at 7.53. Most of these being strategy games that I haven't really played. And then it says using the business reply card, they have a list of 30 games that you can rank on the rating of 1 to 9. And it adds a big old list, including stuff they've just reviewed for this magazine, like Seamus is on there, Attack at EPCYG4, you know, Seafox, Legionnaire. All the games they reviewed, to some extent, here in the magazine are in this list now. And I guess they have some holdovers from last time. They also include a rating section of all the articles in this. So again, with the 1 to 9, or if it doesn't interest you, enter a 0. And they didn't show results of that from last time if they've done this before, and I don't remember mentioning it. So I guess we'll see you next issue. And that wraps it up for this one. Let's take a quick look at Micro, the 6502-6809 journal. This is November 1982, issue number 54. 2 bucks 50 on the cover price, 2 bucks 95 internationally, and 2 pounds in the UK. It's a gray cover that's really hard to read on the Reproduction at Internet Archive. This is the last physical copy I have for about a year's worth of, episodes, of issues. So I'm looking at my copy here to describe the cover, which is yeah, a gray background, you know, usual looking through the computer monitor with the keyboard at a castle. It doesn't look like a huge castle. It's in the middle of a lake, it looks like. So it's just a castle lake, and then in the background there's trees, and then a mountainside, and you know, sky behind it. And sort of superimposed on the front is a red dragon, sort of pixelated, attacking. It looks like a knight with a shield or something. It's kind of hard to discern. It says games feature, and for the Pet and Apple Castle Adventure, which obviously is what the or, or the um, cover photo is about, uh, it says uh, Atari character graphics, high-res graphics and memory use on the Apple, and Pet graphic 80 conversion. So yay, boo, boo, respectively. There are 116 pages in this issue. In the highlights section before the table of contents, they say, in this games feature, we expand a bit from our usual content and offer an array of games for a wide variety of computers. Although we don't usually publish games, we feel that it may be valuable, particularly where they demonstrate techniques or cultivate a skill in the user. Instead of making games a regular part of Micro, we prefer to do it all at once. So they list there's a game for nearly every computer, and then they also say a little section Atari coverage takes off. With the addition of contributing editor Paul Swanson, Micro's Atari coverage has improved considerably. Paul's new column, From Here to Atari, starts this month. In addition, he continues his character graphics article series with a discussion of fine scrolling. And it says this month's datasheet is a handy reference for serious Atari programmers. So we'll take a look at that. And in addition, Atari users will be interested in programming extra colors, even in limited high-resolution modes. Richard and Donna Marmon illustrate two techniques, one that uses adjacent color dots and one that quickly alternates displays. We'll check that out. So flipping to the table of contents, in addition to the stuff that was mentioned there, there's a the number shuffle is the game on the Atari. And there's an additional mention of the Atari, but it's Atari Joysticks on the OSI, which is, a, as we'll find, a, a hardware modification you can do on the OSI to get your Atari Joysticks to work there. The micro editorial says responsible gamesmanship. Micro does not publish games. We run editorials explaining why, outlining the weaknesses, drawbacks, and worthlessness of many computer games. The computer was not developed to fill arcades or force squeals of delight or anguish from mesmerized users who spent hours killing the same aliens over and over again. So why have we not only added games in this issue, but featured them? We aren't giving in. We still believe that many games are a waste of time. But we also believe that games, when written and presented properly, can educate. 
In fact, they can act as an effective tool at all educational levels. And then you're kind of blah, blah, blah. It's just not all about hand-eye coordination. They want to focus on games that have a skill development and that Micro wants to promote those types of games. You know, stimulating games that require both the use of skill and the growth of skills. And again, they mean like not Twitch skills. So to finish off, we hope you enjoy the games we present in this issue, but hope you will learn some new techniques and some good methods for writing your own games. We hope you give some thought to the social impact of computer games as well. So bah humbug, right? So the article on the OSI use of Atari joysticks requires you to build a hardware circuit and shows you how to integrate it to your OSI. The next article is another continuing overview of the 68,000, and for a 6502, 6809 journal, they sure do like their 68,000. And further on is another article on the 68,000 on the binary arithmetic operations that it has. And here in the middle of my magazine, in the, as a sort of a bookmark or something, is a receipt for this. So it's from the Byte Shop in Champaign, Illinois, dated 10-26-82. It's a handwritten receipt for one floppy saver for seven ninety five, one micro November 82 for two fifty, and one creative computing November 82 for two ninety five. Sold by Mark C. for cash. There was 40 cents tax and total was $13.80. Yeah, it's Byte Shop, the affordable computer store for, on let's see, 1602 South Neal Street, P.O. Box 1678, Champaign, Illinois, 61820-1678. Unfortunately, it now appears to be a AAA office and a sporting goods store, and not the bite shop. There's an article, Solve the Pagoda Puzzle Using Recursive Assembly by Sherwood Hoyt. And this is the Pagoda Puzzle as in the Tower of Hanoi problem. It's assembly language. It says it is um, pet apple and OSI compatible, but it's asking for character input and output routines, so probably it would take a bit to convert to the Atari. But the assembly language source code is there if you wanted to look at how it was done, at least. The Atari game is Number Shuffle. This is by Frank Roberts. It's a little less than 150 lines of basic. It says a computer version of the popular game Magic Square, which is basically a 4x4 board where you can slide numbers around and you have to get then get them in order. It says to set up the grid, the 4x4 grid, the numbers are shuffled 100 times randomly and then you are then able to control it by entering the number to move and then that slides it to the empty space, I guess. It checks for a, a solution condition when all the numbers are in order. And then at the end, it plays a little sound. So I guess this is the idea of a micro-magazine uh, fun game. Definitely no hand-eye coordination required here. The next Atari thing is the character graphics from Basic article, part two. This is by Paul Swanson. It talks about the, gra- the advantages of using character graphics versus a fully bitmap display. Example, using mode 7 is about 4K for memory, whereas if you use character graphics, it's about 200 bytes plus the character set definition. But then, of course, it goes into the drawbacks. You know, it's not individually addressable pixels anymore. Showing an example of the display list talks about load memory scan instructions and, you know, how to set up where it points to memory. And then the JVB command setting, telling Antic where to draw the, the display list at the top of the screen. And then it gets into fine scrolling and what you have to change there. So you have to enable the particular scrolling bits you want, either the horizontal or vertical bit, and then how you have to add load memory scan on each of the lines that scroll. For a more detailed scrolling explanation, see my tutorial on playermissile.com. It includes a basic program along with a very detailed description about what he's doing, both in the comments and in the uh, text of the article. So it has routines to you know clear the screen, copy the character set to RAM, modify it, set up the display list, initialize the scrolling, draw the characters, read the joysticks, and update the scrolling position. No word here if he's going to continue this. I thought it was a multiple-part series, but maybe it's just two, so I guess we'll see next issue if there's more to this. Just before we get to the next Atari article is another ad for Monster Mash, but again, it's only the Apple II and Apple III version, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say the Atari version is much, much better than the Apple version. 
The article Extra Colors for the Atari by Richard and Donna Marmon does not talk about artifacting colors, which is what I was sort of expecting from the title. It is talking essentially about dithering. They use Graphics 7 as an example, you know, Basic Graphics Mode 7. They talk about mixing colors in sort of like a alternating pattern, you know, red pixel next to a blue pixel next to a red pixel. If you sort of stand back and look, it blends to purple. There's two basic listings, and the first listing allows you to type uh, two different colors, and it then patterns the colors with those even alternate, even odd alternating colors, and allows you to see what the resulting blend looks like. The second listing uses a different technique. They're actually using a display list interrupt to change one of the colors on a particular line, and then it you it asks for two colors to enter, and then it alternates that color on that line only. So any display list interrupt or any line that you include the display list interrupt would have this color that would change, that would alternate between, you know, on each thing. I don't understand how this really gets you that many more colors, though. I guess the colors that don't have the display list interrupt would always remain a single color, but the ones that do would be this blended color. And so yeah, they they say this, you've got to keep track of which lines need to be updated, and then in a in a sort of larger program, you would need to change multiple display list um, entries in order to like force those lines to be to have these alternating colors. They suggest another technique where you you know flip complete displays that we've talked about recently in some other magazines. Oh, they don't provide any code for that, but suggest that's another possibility with this kind of color mixing. And so really, we kind of understand that the Atari is very line-oriented. Any Anytime you can isolate colors by lines, you're really taking advantage of the Atari's capabilities. The penultimate interesting thing here in the magazine is the From Here to Atari column by Paul Swanson. The little editorial intro says, We are pleased to introduce our new Atari column. Paul Swanson has published articles in several microcomputer magazines and has authored a book on disk techniques. He runs his own software consulting firm and markets a full-size keyboard for the Atari 400. This is basically the introduction column is kind of introducing what the column is going to be about, saying it's going to focus on some feature of Atari's hardware and ask for specific questions to send him a letter. Also says the column on occasion will try to clarify conflicting rumors and says he's heard three or four people mention some software way to get rid of the key click. He says, I can appreciate the need for eliminating that noise. It seems much louder when everyone else is asleep. But he says he looks through the whole OS and hasn't found anything where you can just turn it off. So the only way he can see to do it is to have a switch that physically disconnects the speaker or write your own keyboard handler. It says the next column will feature the Atari Regional Software Acquisition Centers and will be of particular interest to anyone that plans to market any Atari software. And that January's column will cover technical literature and explore places where you can find lists and explanations of all the memory locations that you might need to use. And that brings us to the ultimate interesting thing of the magazine. It's the Atari 400-800 datasheet. It's micro data sheet number 10, and it includes some stuff. Yeah, it has a listing of some useful page zero locations, some antique display mode information, the GTIA modes, a list of color values, the joystick values, you know, listing of all eight directions plus the center value, and then has a bunch of hardware registers. So the GTIA color registers and the sound registers, player missile, write registers, the collision registers, how to read the joystick ports. So yeah, it's a little useful one page thing. And with that, we're done with micro. Next up is Softline. This is Volume 2, November 1982, $2 on the cover price, 36 pages in this issue. The neon title is in white this time, and below that looks like a girl sitting at home doing her homework, and sort of overlaid on this image are a few, like, video game characters. Not of any video game that I'm, that I recognize, but it's if the little characters are in her world somewhere, and the text on the, the page says, Arcade Gaming Friend or Foe, referencing an article written by a psychologist that we'll discuss here in a, in a few pages. The table of contents does show a few things of Atari interest. One is the Bill Williams series on Atari Sound. Uh, this is titled Just Like Clockwork. There's another interview with Jerry White, who is a famous in Atari circles. 
And the article reference on the cover is called What Price Arcades? And so we'll definitely talk about that. I noted here in the masthead stuff, it says the trademarks. And this is the first time I have been aware that it added other machines other than Apple and Atari. Now it includes trademark references for IBM PCs, uh, Commodores, and TRS-80s. I will talk about a couple other articles. One is the Apple II graphics series by Ken Williams, and this is called a high-speed triple play. And it says, this month we'll look at three ways to increase the speed and efficiency of your graphics. So it includes three ideas that, although specifically these have coding for the Apple II, the ideas are applicable to any machine. The first is partial modification, where it says instead of redrawing the entire figure, you only update the things that have changed. And this would be balanced out, of course, by the complexity of the amount, you know, having to decide what is going to change or not. So that would require, you know, testing and evaluation to see if it's actually faster than just blasting out the whole thing. The second topic he looks at is pre-calculation, which is essentially all about what you can create ahead of time as tables. This also includes a trade-off. This one is speed versus space. So is it worth the amount of bytes it's going to take to create this table? And again, that was something you're going to have to figure out by testing. And finally, he says, we'll move on to perhaps the most elegant of the techniques called pre-shifting. And this is something that's almost necessary on the Apple hardware if you're using sprite animation, because there's no built-in sprite software. Pre-shifting essentially is figuring out all the positions within a byte of the images that you're going to use and creating those ahead of time. So if you have a ship and then it can move, you know, at a pixel level resolution to create an image with the ship at one position, then to create another image with the ship shifted one pixel over. And there's a table of all of these such that when you need to draw a ship at a particular pixel location, you figure out which position it is shifted relative to a byte and then look up that particular set of bytes and write those out to the screen. So instead of having to do like ASL, ASR, you know, as you're writing these things out to the screen, you've done this ahead of time and then look it up. So it's kind of a combination of or an extension of really of this uh, idea of pre-calculation and, and table generation. Next is the interview with Jerry White by Gary and Marsha Rose. He was a prolific writer of Atari software. And Kay Sabbath interviewed him back in episode 124 of the Antic podcast series. The article starts out saying, You don't have to be an advanced mathematician or machine language wizard to do programming. Jerry White has written 25 programs that are currently available for the Atari, and they're all in BASIC. In the article, it says he's not an arcader, and he finds arcade games boring, and he prefers simulations. The article says he learned programming while on a job that was sort of up and down in intensity and said when he had slower times, he would write some programs to do little one-off tasks. And after that job helped him learn, he started writing commercial software. His interest in music yielded several programs, and he made the music for Fernando Herrera's My First Alphabet. The article also says he likes some sports stuff, and so he made a bowling game and the bowler's database, and then Sunday Golf from Adventure International. The article says he believes that the ease of use is the crucial ingredient in a good program. And the article says his programs are always loaded with on lots of on-screen prompts. And the article closes saying that he's really happy with the Atari and quotes him as saying, I hope to spend at least half my time learning more about this incredible machine. I have to continue learning better programming techniques using assembly language, and I'm considering taking the time to learn fourth. And then it says he's going to continue to write magazine articles and that someday he might try a unique concept called a vacation. Next is a review of a pinball construction set. This is reviewed for the Apple, but it was also available on the Atari. There's the Adventures in Adventuring column, Amazing We Will Go by Ken Rose. As you might guess, it's all about mazes in adventure games. The article says, ever since adventure, it has almost been a requirement that adventure games include a maze. Perhaps the neatest among the current ones is the maze in Zork 1 because of its complexity and the necessity of exploring it thoroughly. 
I haven't played a lot of text and adventures, and for people who have played a lot of text and adventures, CK and Carrington in their series, uh, Eaten by a Gru, and the consensus from them that I remember is that mazes were terrible. They were their least favorite parts of the game, especially the bits about, you know, going north into one room and then going south leads you into an entirely different room. So this, this idea of asymmetry is super annoying. So yeah, I'm not a big fan of mazes. Um, there's some examples on how to set up a maze in basic. It's an Applesoft basic, but there are some notes to convert it to Atari basic, you know, these examples here. But perhaps the lesson of Eaten by a Gru is don't spend too much time making mazes because they're not that fun. Next, we get to the Atari Sound column by Bill Williams. This is part three, just like clockwork. And that's alluding to the various clocks available on the Atari to drive the frequencies of the sound generation capabilities of the Pokey. He starts by saying, If we think of sound as a series of pulses coming from the television speaker, the frequency or pitch of that sound will depend on how fast the pulses come, the frequency of their appearance. And I'm just loving his language that he uses, the descriptions, how well he's conveying some complicated thoughts in these past, you know, this this article and the previous two, how well he can explain this stuff using sort of common words, referencing the specific technical words. Like here he uses frequency in two senses, you know, the frequency of a wave, which is sort of the scientific version of frequency. And then the common frequency is like, you know, how frequent does something happen? Like, does a bird come to your bird feeder frequently? Or do asteroids impact the Earth frequently? Obviously, a bird eats at a bird feeder more frequently than an asteroid hits the Earth. So the frequency of the bird eating at a bird feeder is higher than the frequency of an asteroid hitting the Earth. This idea of frequency just being counting is super descriptive. He goes on and says, To control the frequency of a sound, a counter or clock is needed to time out pulses. Each of the Atari's four channels can be tied to one of three different clock speeds, 1.79 MHz, 64 kHz, and 15 kHz. Now, obviously, those by themselves aren't going to be much because the human range of hearing is about 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, and only one of those clocks falls in that range at all. The way computers get around this is using divide-by-end circuits, which is you wait till a specified number of pulses come in, and then you put one pulse out. The example he uses in the text is a divide-by-seven, so if n is seven, then the circuit outputs one pulse for every seven pulses it gets in. This is all we really need to know for pulse generation. Select a master clock, select a divided by n circuit number, and then you'll get a tone. He says the basic sound statement uses only the normal clocking frequency of 64 kilohertz. And so the only thing you can do with the basic statement is the divide by n number, which gives the Atari four channels of sound with an 8-bit frequency resolution. That's about the limit of what you can do with basic. And then he starts describing some stuff you can do with poking around with the actual hardware. One of those is joining two channels together to get a 16-bit frequency resolution, and others are changing the base master clock, and he goes through some examples of all this stuff. So he lists out the audio frequency registers and the audio control registers, locations of those in hardware, and then the audio control register, which is the master switch as he describes it, for all how all the sound channels work. So it's a bit field, and he goes through and lists what each bit does, including how to change from the 1.79 megahertz to the 64 or 15 kilohertz frequencies how to band the channels together to form 16-bit resolutions, the high-pass filter available to channel 1 or channel 2, and the 17-bit versus 9-bit polynomial random counters. He includes two sample programs in BASIC. The first is a demonstration of the 16-bit resolution, where binding two channels into one gives you a higher frequency response. And the other program is a utility to print out the two-byte values for musical notes in a whole bunch of different octaves. 
But don't do what I did and don't run this exactly as listed because I ran it on my Atari 800 emulator and it uses the LPrint, which sends stuff to the printer. And so it generated like 500 lines to the printer, but each line was on a separate page. So I had to run and stop my printer real fast. I made it after only about 20 pages got printed, but still, you know, unexpected uh, leap from the chair here. That's the end of the article, except there's this little thing at the end. It says, uh, what is the routine for one hand clapping? Don't know what that means, but then it says, how auditorily inclined are you? Can you make an Atari sing? Can you produce a subtle yet richly elegant and evocative tone using the full potential of your machine's wondrous sound generating capabilities? Can you do it in 150 lines or less of Atari Basic? And it says, if your answers are yes or even maybe, you can qualify to enter the Softline Sound Effects Contest. So they're asking for a program, including a disc and listing, and then a description. You know, what the sound is supposed to be and why. And it says entries will be judged on creativity of the program and description. It says a great program could win accompanied by a so-so description and vice versa. Winner will receive $100 worth of products from any softline advertiser. Entry deadline January 15th, 1983. So you might just sneak it in under the wire if you hurry. The winners will be published in the March issue. So get those entries in. Next, we come to the article Home Arcade's Mania or Mantra by Rich Hoffman. It relates to the cover Arcade Gaming Friend or Foe, and I guess this is the friend version, so I guess there's a competing article later on, which I referenced earlier. My initial reading of this was was also bad, but I think having read it again, this is the, the positive side, and the other article is the negative side. So there's a picture of a guy sort of meditating in front of this Apple II, which looks like some sort of Pac-Man game on the screen. And the conclusion of this article is like, gaming can be a stress reducer. He says, initially, new stuff is scapegoated, and so parents are worrying about children becoming addicted to arcade games. And he's saying in the right context that it can be useful. He makes the case separately for kids and adults. In the adult world, he says, stress is a common topic of concern, and they seek remedies in various ways, you know, clinically, either self-managing or engaging in, like, hobbies. Says virtually all the methods are or have something in common, which is isolating you mentally from the real world. One of the bases he says for treating stress is the temporary removal from reality. So listening to music, gardening, walking, jogging, and then by extension, game playing. In contrast, he says children enjoy games because it gets them some aspect of control in their lives when they're dominated by what every adult says them for them to do. Having some control of your environment is a relief to kids. He goes on a bit about types of games, saying that kids as they grow can burn out of arcade games because there's not enough strategy to them, whereas adults in high-stress jobs can be drawn to arcade games because of the sort of relation between meditation and doing repetitive, undemanding mental tasks. All right, I'm going to do something unprecedented. I'm going to skip ahead to the the other article, What Price Arcades by Sherwin Steffen, and I'll do a little direct compare and contrast here. Normally, I cover the magazine articles like in order, but this time I'm not. So you are here at this momentous time. The article opens with some scaremongering, three items saying their news stories. It claims that a salesman kills boss over Pac-Man from the LA Times. National Enquirer says teenager has a heart attack while playing an arcade game and subsequently dies. That we mentioned earlier, actually. Although the earlier article said it was from the Weekly World News. But it's perhaps not surprising that the Weekly World News and National Enquirer may have the same sources. And the third item, a psychiatrist in private practice reports that one of his patients is so totally immersed in arcade games that he is unable to carry out responsibilities of normal life. Then it says, let's consider some problems that may, and we emphasize the word may, arise for people who spend a lot of time playing arcade games. The hypothesis under consideration is the nature of the arcade game with its interaction with the player's perceptual slash motor information processing systems has potential for instigating long-term psychophysiological effects that may be damaging to the player. 
These effects may range from distractibility when presented with unchanging stimuli, for example books and other printed materials, to the breakdown of body immune defenses resulting from stress. If this hypothesis is credible, then there's need for research to determine its validity or lack of validity. And the author here has the exact opposite point of the previous article saying that arcade games are designed to be stressful, saying that success leads to increasing difficulty and that the best games are perceived as those that can never be completely mastered. In addition, the video displays in the screen flicker is argued here as stress-inducing and even physically harmful, noting that some people have resulted in seizures. Other physical problems like eye strain and quote-unquote arcade wrist may have long-term implications. The conclusion says the pervasive presence of arcade games as part of our recreational technology suggests there may be hidden costs to be considered. The thinking person will want to assess these potential costs and weigh them against the benefits that result from using the technology. It's more just a think piece than having any real conclusions. I'm just suggesting there probably should be some studies. And it even says right in here that this all should be regarded as speculation, thoughtful and inductive perhaps, yet still just speculation. I have to credit the author does alternate between use of male and female pronouns and doesn't just assume that all game players are men. So skipping back to where we left off, we have a couple reviews of Frogger, the Atari version by John Harris, and Fox. this is the review of the Apple version, although it is available for the Atari. There's a review of the Infocom game Starcross. And then there's a review of Salmon Run by Bill Williams. Or that, well, that's who wrote it. They don't say who the review is by. It says it's a charming game that gives a player a genuine sense of ecological accomplishment. And it says by far the best feature of Salmon Run is its outstanding sound effects. The bubbling stream and the progress of the fish seem remarkably lifelike. And it says waterfalls seem particularly authentic, as do the cries of the seagulls. And in a reference us olds will understand, says the seagulls sound like they've flown in from an outtake of the birds. The final article is The Amazing Maze Part 2 by Brian Fitzgerald, and it's an AppleSoft basic program, but I'm sure you could modify it for Atari, but it's how to draw sort of a 3D perspective of being inside a maze, where it's not a motion, so it's not a smoothly moving maze, but if you step from one, imagine a maze on grid squares, if you step from one square to another, you can redraw the screen, and it shows you kind of like, well, just a small number of points you really have to know and just like what to connect to make a sort of a perspective of you inside a maze, kind of pre-calculating the perspective you need to draw these a maze from the inside. That's really it in the magazine, except for the high score list. We have two pages of high scores, but sabotage has been deleted from the list. So bummer. It doesn't say what new has replaced it. It does have this thing called a verified score, which is a, each score that is verified has a little asterisk beside it. And then there's an interesting column that describes what it means to be verified. It says the only thing that's required is a signature because they received an anonymous letter with doctored screenshots from about a dozen games, it says. And it goes on specifically to mention a guy named Shane Rollin, who I remember talking about in a previous episode, how he had a whole bunch of high scores. Well, it says Gary LaPointe, who is an employee of K-Byte, has this to say about Shane's 91,200 and K-Razy shootout. Is that number one, the game only goes to eight levels. Number two, in cheat mode, you can achieve an eighth level score maybe of about 55,000. And three, the highest score achieved by anyone at K-Byte is about 33,000. Continuing the piling on, it says Shane's 934,783 score on Pac-Man. Alex Levin's programmer of that game for the home computer points out the final digit of any legitimate score must always be zero. And that a score of more than 900,000 would mean acquiring 78 keys. And at that speed of play, it's impossible to outrun the ghosts and that the game blows up at 750,000. And just in case you thought you were done piling on of this Shane Rollin, just about everybody and their second cousin, it says, all have something to say about Shane's Caverns of Mars score, none of it nice. So it says all of his games that he held high scores on are revoked and up for grabs. 
Although it does say that the Caverns of Mars is nobody can agree on what a legitimate score is in that game. Most people believe that you can't score more than about 700,000, although one person says that there's a ceiling of 260,000, another one says he's scored at least 325,000, and yet a third person that says there's some, uh, not quite a cheat, but there's a hack that you can get that allows you to repeat the first cavern and essentially get an infinite score. So yeah, nobody's quite sure. They move into some tributes to some players who got had high scores for a while and then have been supplanted, and games that have been removed from consideration like Sabotage, so yeah, I guess they, they officially said goodbye to Sabotage, not a current enough game. It notes, those of you reporting scores over 64 on Choplifter, you have an early version that allows you to lure hostages away from the post office and back to your chopper, as you well know, it says. So it's another game, Labyrinth must regrettably be removed from the rolls because the cheat mode has been general knowledge now. There's another call out of some person who, who got 223,048 on a game Falcons, but the game increments in number in amounts of 10, but the guy complaining about it beat the score, so he said, ah, it's behind me now. It calls out David Torrey. It says, you will have to resubmit your verified Fly War score so it doesn't look like you went back and changed it after your brother signed it. Then it asks, Arthur Patrick of Del Mar, California, your high score of 790,250 was verified for what game was that again? He sent the score, but not the game. That's interesting. It asks James Suyuki which computer he played the game Cycloid on. Kindly resubmit score and all necessary info. And finally, it says, Next issue, how to make and maintain a high-score database for the whole family and print out certificates of merit and recognition of your achievements. On the inside back cover here, we have an ad for the Dark Crystal movie tie-in game. An exciting high-res adventure. And this is from Sierra Online. So again, we're getting more Sierra Online stuff instead of online systems. We're going to finish off the magazine coverage and this episode with Softside. This is Softside number 35, which is volume 6, number 2, but again, they don't show that until you get to the masthead inside. And even with that, they still don't show you what month it is, so you don't know that it's the November 1982 issue, in which contains 132 pages. On the cover page, it says, Softside, now for the IBM PC 2. Not the PC 2, but PC also. It's a very orange cover. It depicts a sunset with the, the disc of the sun very far away and very small. And in the foreground, there's a large orange car that's about to run over a, a frog that's leaping out of the way. And the text says, Hopper, run for your life. And also there's some text that says, Micro Arcade, Entertainment for the Holidays, and Games for Cooperation and Growth, an alternative for designers. Turning to the table of contents, the front runner, which is sort of the, the first thing they show in the table of contents, is it's the game Hopper, and it includes a picture, kind of a zoomed-in version of the front cover with the frog leaping out of the way of a tire. That's all the portion you can see in this in this little um, excerpted picture. It says, you poor little frog, you've lost your way and can't find your way home. When you finally see it, a busy highway and river stand in your way. So clearly it's a Frogger clone, and we'll take a look at that. It doesn't say what machines it supports right yet. I mean, obviously we'll get to it in a minute, but it says that it's it lists the author and then it lists three other authors as translation authors. And spoiler alert, there is actually an Atari translation. I just don't remember what the other ones are. So we'll check it out. In the features section, it lists the games for cooperation and growth, which is about sort of, you know, multiplayer games. And the Atari side section lists a game called Dead Stick Landing, which is on the disc only version. There's a program called Saucer Formation, which is another game. They got some reviews, and then they have an article exploring the Atari frontier about display list interrupts. And then, of course, they have sections for the PC, the TRS-80, and the Apple, but we're really not going to cover those, because that's not in my contract, and you can't make me. In the Entertainment Tomorrow section, there's an article called Is It Real or Is It a Robot? by Alan L. Wold, and it's an article about what he calls a telefactor device. Sometimes he says referred to telepresence, but he's talking about remote-controlled stuff that has, like, sensory feedback. It's a pretty good article about how he envisions the development of remote-controlled planes, 
and sort of the value of having these sort of more immersive experiences in terms of learning like a real world skill without the risk. You know, so flying a plane with this sort of telepresence, as he calls it. If you crash in real life, you're probably dead. But if you crash one of these things, you're just out your monetary investment. And he kind of expands it towards the end of the article about what we now would call like augmented reality, like presenting obstacles or enemies in a flight simulator through this sort of immersive control. It fits pretty well with what really happened because he doesn't go into a lot of, of super detail about what he thinks you know the technology would actually do. Rather, he describes what the technology should feel like. The next article is Games for Cooperation and Growth, an Alternative for Designers by Peter J. Favaro. And the teaser quote is, The game design philosophy outlined here is intended to aid programmers in developing games which facilitate positive social contact between the players. It's a three-page article, and he spends almost the entire first page talking about his background and sort of the arguments for and against video games in terms of how they relate to children's development. He says he's a school psychologist, doctoral candidate in clinical psychology, and educational computing consultant. Says he started doing video game research about three years ago, and his doctoral dissertation is about whether video games cause positive or negative changes in kids and their development. He talks about there's not a whole lot of really well-defined research at this point, and says there's you know people on both sides of the argument who don't have a lot of evidence to support their conclusions. His favorite quote on the games are bad side is that games serve as substitutes for adolescent masturbatory activity. Note, this is still a family-friendly podcast. I'm just reading what they quoted. And at the end of this, you know, rather long introduction, it says that he's briefly going to present both sides of the existing controversy and then the shortcomings of both sides of the debate. And it says he's not going to resolve the issue of whether it's, it's harmful because the conclusions are yet to be drawn because there's just not enough research that's been done yet. So he starts with his criticisms. He says the people who oppose video games generally do so on two grounds. One, that they're addictive, and two, they cause inappropriate social behavior. And then he says, aside from the fact there's no evidence to support either of those comments, from a technical point of view, they're both illogical and incorrect. Technically, no behavior can be addictive because the word addiction technically describes a physical dependence on an ingested substance. He says the real word they should be using is whether games can be targets for compulsive behavior. That is behavior that is unstoppable because of an uncontrollable urge to perform it. He says it, that games can be compulsive, but it has nothing to do with the games themselves. He contends that individuals who develop compulsions will always find a target for their habits. He mentions examples like food or work, that there are all, ty all types of things that can be targets of compulsive behavior. He doesn't discount that there are possibility that some people do have some clinical compulsion to play a particular game, but that kids who get into these behaviors is the fault of the parents for not directing their child's behavior. He contends the kid could just as easily get hooked on any other kind of recreational activity, not necessarily just video games. He makes a brief connection with violence in games. He compares it to TV a little bit, that it's been suggested for a long time that kids that watch a lot of TV increase violent behavior, and then so they applied that to games as well. And he says, well, you know, the research is not really there yet. And then he makes an observation that violence and aggression have been major themes in child's play for, you know, decades. And then he mentions, like, specifically cowboys and Indians, which, you know, <laughs> is not okay to do anymore. But then cops and robbers, or tag, or hide-and-go-seek. And he says, all of which involve either stalking, catching, shooting, killing, or fighting. He next moves to a shorter section, the pro-video game arguments. And it says, like, supporters of video games have made similar sort of outlandish claims about the benefits of video games. And the one he focuses on is improving hand-eye coordination. And he doesn't pull any punches with this one. He says, this is simply not true and it won't be until there's a good deal of evidence to support it. And then he goes on to the fact that this was his first area of research. And so he set up some undescribed experiment. He doesn't really say what it is, but that in his experiment, he failed to find any increase in hand-eye coordination. 
To drive this point home, he brings up a sports training experiment. He says he's going to see if he can increase hand-eye coordination, and the test is going to be how well the subjects do at racquetball. But the skills he's going to train them with are basketball or tennis. And so he trains up each group. You know, they both improve the basketball and tennis skills. Then which group might you expect to have better results on the criterion of the test, which is improvement in racquetball skills? Well, probably the tennis group. Since swinging a tennis racket and swinging a racquetball are more aligned than shooting a basketball and swinging a racquetball racket. His point now is that is just general training, you know, improving in something. Does that mean you improved your hand-eye coordination overall? And he says, no, this generalization is too broad. You know, yes, maybe tennis players improve their racquetball skills, but do tennis players improve their swimming skills? Bringing it back to video games, he's saying like hand-eye coordination is very complex and obviously in this example, very specific. And we're left to draw the conclusion that video games really can't improve hand-eye coordination in a general sense. The final section in the article is called GCG, an alternative, which is talking about his games for cooperation and growth. He says he offers this as an in the way of constructive criticism, saying this video game design philosophy was designed to help improve social behavior. And specifically, he says, um, concept like sharing, helping good sportsmanship. And he developed this using some games from the VCS, but he didn't allow the kids to play the games in the usual way. Instead, he modified the controls such that, like on the game Asteroids, one player would fly the ship and the other player would shoot the missiles. And then children played in pairs. And when all the pairs in the entire group of children reached a million points, they had a big party. He said all one big team focused on a common goal, stressing mutual support, cooperation, and social reinforcement. No child was allowed to compare their scores to others or make discouraging comments. Players only offer positive support. And he says in just a short period of time, these children showed remarkable and demonstrable gains in all aspects of their social behavior. Children who were not used to expressing any other emotion but anger were patting each other on the back and offering one another praise. He said he ended up receiving a bunch of letters even months after he finished working with them. One of them, he says, came from a previously withdrawn and isolated child saying, Dear Mr. Favaro, we are sad you're not here with us anymore. We learned lots of manners. You were very nice to us. And thank you for letting us play Atari. Your friend, Michael. To some of us listening to this today, we're probably thinking he's talking about like, you know, everybody gets a participation trophy and nobody wins, nobody loses. But the context here, I think, is important. He's talking about you know kids he labeled as emotionally, how do you put it, emotionally disturbed children. You know, obviously, again, we wouldn't say it in those words today, but children with behavioral issues and then using video games as a positive influence. Certainly in my own experience, having two kids and, you know, see the sort of natural competitiveness where when one wins a game and the other wants to beat that person and, you know, sort of continual one-upmanship, it's nice to have a game with cooperation being the result. You know, a team goal and being a member of a team is an important developmental skill. I mean, obviously, I let my own kids play individual games and talk to each other about it. But I also enjoy having them play games together where they have this common focus. And it's super rewarding when one compliments the other saying, oh, that was a good thing you just did right there. You know, that really helped us get to our goal. I've mentioned in the podcast before that I like, you know, cooperative games. And here at the end of this article, he talks about some tips about making cooperative games. He said he began uh, designing some games for the Atari 800, and eventually he says he's going to try to feature a game in this magazine that has, you know, these principles that he wrote. So the principles he lays out are setting a goal for the game that has common goals for the, the team that's playing. And so one of the things he says is make the goal impossible to achieve without a high level of cooperation, and that failure should occur when one player tries to do too much at the expense of the other. Next, he says, structure the game theme so that instead of like killing the bad guys, it becomes capturing the bad guys, you know, focus on rescue missions or stuff that promotes goodwill instead of like, you know, graphic violence. 
Next, he says, alternate the game tasks. So instead of just one thing, like you're always just shooting invaders or solving a maze, have multiple variable tasks with requiring different sets of skills. Or, he says, and this is an interesting one, has split up the tasks such that one player controls one aspect and the other player controls a complementary aspect. Like he says, his example is let player one control the horizontal movement and player two control the vertical movement. You know, something that would require extreme coordination for the group to be successful. Another, he says, alternate and equalize the roles of the players so don't make one player more powerful than the other. Or if it has to be, then swap it later on so that the, the second player then has the more powerful uh, control of the situation. The penultimate idea is emphasize higher level thinking. So he says stress problem solving and strategy planning and then saying create pauses in the game so players can like talk about their plans before they actually, you know, so don't make it go so fast that they have no time to, to think and, you know, strategize. And he also says allow several means to achieve the same goal. And then finally, he says, let the computer be a model, meaning the computer can demonstrate the appropriate social reinforcements, saying like, you know, nice work or some team oriented compliment that lets the players know that they're performing in the sort of expected and correct manner. And to conclude the article, he says using this philosophy doesn't require any drastic changes in programming techniques. And yeah, in a future article, he says he's going to feature a game that he developed using these design principles. Yeah, I like that. There's a lot of good ideas for, you know, multiplayer cooperative games. And speaking of multiplayer cooperative games, that's not what we have next. We have Hopper, which, it says, is an arcade-style game for the TRS-80 Model 1 and 3 by Howard Wolko, for the Atari by Rich Bouchard and Alan J. Zett, and for the Apple by Carrie Shetline. It says the documentation is by Fred J. Kondo. So I, I guess the text of the article and all the documentation of all the variables used must be by Fred J. Kondo. So there's an introduction, and it's Frogger, basically. And we're here on page 28, and so they have full listings for the Apple, Atari, and TRS-80, which takes us all the way to page 47. The Atari version covers six pages, although not completely full. There's a few, like, half-page ads. But it's a lot of typing, and fortunately it's available, of course, now on uh, the soft side disc. It includes a screenshot, and, you know, I was not expecting a whole lot, so I, but I fired it up and tried it, and it takes about a minute to initialize from the basic, so you're sitting there for a while. But I have to say, it's a really good basic program. It's probably one of the better basic games I've played. I'll demonstrate for you here. It's a mode zero game, so it uses artifacting. And it uses a player for the frog. As you cross the road, it has a sound effect of sort of a, a background, uh, like road noise. And it only gives you a few seconds to cross to the other side, and so that was me dying. So I'll try to be more direct. So waiting for the cars to cross, now I'm moving... Now I'm off the road in the center section, and as I hop onto the logs, the sound effect changes to like a, a water effect. As I hop, and then pop into one of the houses. Yeah, I mean, it's a little slow to respawn, but it's really, yeah, it's quite a good basic game. It's probably one of the best basic games I've played. Certainly as basic type-in, magazine type-in games, it's really, really highly up there. So I'd recommend you check it out. Back to the magazine, we'll skip the PC side and the TRS-80 side and get to the Atari side. The disc-only program is called Dead Stick Landing. It's a flight simulator for the space shuttle orbiter as it's coming back and uh, landing. So it says it's the, the world's fastest glider. The original program was apparently written by Al Ragsdale, but this Atari version is by Al Johnston. It doesn't say where the original version or what platform that was on. So again, it's in basic. I did try it. It refreshes the screen about once every second to a second and a half. So it's very hard to sort of get any sense of fluid motion at all. So it's difficult to play. And I would recommend probably sticking with Hopper. 
The next article is Saucer Formation by David Plotkin. It's a short little basic game, kind of a little Space Invaders type, but unfortunately it's very slow to play as well. And it's so slow as to almost be unplayable because your shot travels up the screen so slowly you have to really anticipate where the enemies are going to be well ahead of where they are. So it would be more useful as like sort of a coding exercise about how to, to start to do a, a small little game. Next, we get to some Atari reviews by David Plotkin. He talks about Clowns and Balloons, Shooting Arcade, Preppy, and Raster Blaster. And then Sheldon Lehman has reviews of Nautilus and Seamus. And the final article is Exploring the Atari Frontier, Displaylist Interrupts by Alan J. Zett. And he, being one of the authors of the Atari version of Hopper, talks a little bit about the Hopper displaylist and the displaylist interrupt used in there. He goes over the memory locations you, that are required to mess with the display list interrupts and talks a little bit about display lists and where you put them in. And yeah, we've talked to uh, display list interrupts enough on this podcast. And so I'll just point you to the big write-up that I wrote on the Player Missile website if you want a lot of information about display list interrupts. That is the end of the Atari side, and then we'll skip over the Apple side. In the new product section, there's only one Atari thing. It's from a company called Advanced Financial Planning in El Toro, California. It's the program Retirement Planning which it says allows the user to set up their finances to account for investment returns, inflation, retirement income needs, and etc. And it does not look like Wade has covered this in Inverse Itasky. And then that's it for SoftSide. But before we close out this episode, let's listen to Mike's letter to the editor about someone frustrated with a game on their Atari system. Dear SoftSide, I read the input section of SoftSide May 1982 and found sympathy with Buzz Taylor. After reading his letter... I decided one day to try for a million points using the Smart Bomb option on Atari's Missile Command. Well, today was the day. Atari's claim that Missile Command will display points up to 1 billion is false. I had a score of 999,930. I hit a Smart Bomb, and my score changed to about 1,760. How can Atari get away with those false claims? None of my friends believe that I scored over a million points. Darren Lane, Siwaran, New Jersey. Editors reply. Although none of us here at SoftSide have achieved a score of over one million points on Missile Command, we've received enough stories similar to yours that we believe you. As for the false claims from Atari, it's probably a case, not exclusive to Atari, of the author of the documentation not having thorough communication with the authors of the software. That was Mike Whalen of the Retro Reads podcast, staff member of the Juice GS magazine, which is a currently published Apple II magazine, and someone who can school me at pinball. A little bit of feedback to report. Dennis Deborah on Twitter let me know that Birmingham, Alabama is called the Pittsburgh of the South because of the steel industry. You know, Pittsburgh Steelers, they're obviously Pittsburgh associated with steel. So Birmingham apparently was one of the big steel producing regions in the South, and hence that nickname. Dennis Debro has done some amazing work disassembling Atari 2600 games. And so I'll include a link in the show notes to his GitHub account, where he has an amazing 25 fully commented disassemblies of Atari 2600 games. You remember Worm War 1 that we talked about several episodes ago? How it was a kernel game, and I was kind of struggling to understand. Well, of course, the 2600, you have to program with a kernel. And so if you're interested in kernel programming, there's no better resource than this. He's got some early Atari games like Air Sea Battle and Canyon Bomber. He has Activision games like Laser Blast and Sequest. He's got Mousetrap by Coleco. Turmoil by Sirius, which is also available on the uh, 800, which is probably also a kernel game. So that would be interesting to compare Turmoil to, you know, on the 2600 to the 800 version. And had I been more aware about what he was doing here, I, I should have reviewed that one instead of Worm War 1. 
If you're interested in kernel programming, after you're erasing the beam, this would be a great place to go to understand how it's written on the 2600. Now some programming notes. I'm going to take a break here for the summer. I still owe a review of the 5200 technical differences between the 800 and that console. So that's going to be the next episode, and I want to review Kicks. But in order to do that, I really need to disassemble it better than what I'm doing now, which means I've got to work on Omnivore. Because not only do I want to disassemble Kicks, I want to figure out how to fix the 5200 version of Kicks to handle the two buttons that the 5200 does use. You know, Kicks has a slow draw and a fast draw mode, but on the Atari port of the 5200 version, it defaults to fast draw without the button pressed, and when you press the button, it does slow draw. But unfortunately, that means when the button is not pressed, you can tend to draw a line. So even though you're trying to follow an existing path, sometimes you just draw a line and wander off and it's easy to get killed. So I'm trying to think if there was a way to sort of have use one button so that when your button is not pressed, you never leave a line. You have to press the button to actually move to make a new line. But if you release it early enough and start to draw in this like slow mode, it would then turn the whole line slow. So you, you could still somehow get away with just using one button on the Atari 8-bit port. So that's kind of my thought. I think I'm going to see if I can get Omnivore going, you know, enough where I can sort of figure out what's happening, how to do this. So I'm going to take the summer off from podcasting, come back in the fall, pick up with this episode 30 with kicks. And in the meantime, oh yeah, I've been owing Kay Savitz some time to work on Jumpman. So by being able to work on Omnivore to do kicks, I should be able to get the Jumpman stuff going. And I really want to create levels. We need to get Jumpman 2 out there, out in the world. So that's my goal for the summer. So I will see you in several months. In the meantime, if you're frustrated with your Missile Command high score, you can send me a tweet about it at Atari 8-Bit Games. Or if you want to disassemble Turmoil for the Atari 800 and compare it to Dennis Debro's disassembly of the 2600 version, you can email me about it at feedback at playermissile.com. Thanks again to Steph Animal for the license to use Dragon Swirl off the album Top Gear as the theme to the podcast. She's got some new stuff on her Bandcamp page that I will link to, including a set of ringtones that she's made that are available for free. But buy everything else from her page like I did. And I will include a link in the show notes to a YouTube video she put together that where she creates a track in a single day that's really good. So I have no musical ability, and it's amazing to watch somebody who does put all this stuff together. See you in a couple months, and I will update my progress on Twitter. Hopefully by the time I talk to you again, Omnivore will be out, Jumpman 2 will be out, and I'll be ready to focus back again on the podcast. Thank you.